The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Woodrow Wilson, they've like scrubbed his name at Princeton University because of like... Because he was the worst president in history on civil liberties? Yeah, that's fair. Woodrow Wilson, top five worst presidents we've had for sure. Is that the one where we have a museum in Iowa? Is he? No, that's Hoover. Hoover. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, yeah, Hoover's on the list. He also in top five, damn. (laughs) (laughs) He just didn't know what he was doing. He tried. He's the only one from Iowa, though, so. Is he? He's also the only one that went to Stanford, so it's the two, yeah. I had no idea we had that presidential scholars in our our midst. Yeah, man, you know me. I feel like I gotta go. I feel. I was gonna say, the only thing I know about Herbert Hoover is from the Little Orphan Annie. You know, not bad. I mean, that's not bad. I didn't know it. But there's a damn name after that him, only. So. That only because I was in the the play as like a, a first grader or Were something. Yeah, I was the narrator. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, that's a perfect role for you. you got that good narrator voice. I mean, even they back knew. then, he's <laughs> six six year old. <laughs> even Dave. back then, I had a Morgan Freeman deep baritone. Yeah, the teachers didn't know what to do with me because I would get up on stage and be like, "Hello, everybody." <laughs> it was a hard knock life. <laughs> <laughs> Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. It's a production of the University of Iowa Harvard College of Medicine. I'm Dave Eller. Before we get going on the episode today, I do need to visit the financial aid office because our sponsor this week is the Mayo Clinic Press. The drugs we have long trusted to help kill pain are now killing us. But what if we were equipped with the information to use opioids wisely, store them safely, avoid their risk, and reverse their problems? Ending the Crisis is the groundbreaking new book from addiction specialist Dr. Holly Geyer, and draws upon the learnings of the award-winning Mayo Clinic Opioid Stewardship Program and goes beyond the history and causes of the opioid epidemic to offer a real solution. Ending the crisis reinvests Mayo Clinic's collective expertise into the lives of every person struggling with the effects of opioid addiction. It's available now wherever fine books are sold, so go get your copy of Ending the Crisis today. And thank you so much for the support, Mayo Clinic Press. You deserve. Let's get back to the podcast happy, because healthy, with me today in the SCP studio and via the internet are some really, really good-looking medical students. Racism, you can see what they look like over on our YouTube channel, crises. but I want you to be before you do that, do not make comments about his contouring. And so I'm going to put it's some links M1 in the show notes Jason some resources that you can use. No, it's not. But the it's bottom <laughs> line is that for what it's worth. It's definitely, it's definitely not. not. I know you're out there. I wish you could do more. Maybe I can. It's like, where? <laughs> the first you were talking about me, and I was like, okay. I don't know what is wrong with me. <laughs> it's M1 Jeff Goddard, who's beautifully contoured today. Thank you. It's the lighting. <laughs> Please pretend Short to be blasé about the beauty of M1 Trent Gilbert. Hey guys. Stop speculating about whether he's had work done. It's M4 Mason Valencourt. It's because I have. Yeah. Valencourt, excuse me. Valencourt nailed he, it. Change your name. Messed mine up 10 minutes after I told you what it was. I, look, I'm... Slip it. Do you smell toast right now? Are you okay? I'm a moron. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a moron. And take a deep breath before you mention how great she looks on Zoom. It's M4 Talia Saab. Thank you. Thank you. My mom is beautiful. That's where I get it. Awesome. I, is this, can we talk a little bit about whether or not I'm a normal human being when it comes to names? I mean, I really have. A major problem and I think it's because I've, it's been drilled into me get people's names right get people's names right and then when the name comes up I freeze or my brain just I don't know my brain just stops working you can do what I do I don't actually know the names of 95% of the people that have lectured to us so far yeah. in medical school I just I wait till somebody makes eye contact and then I start talking you don't need names okay but I yeah, yeah but I do need names <laughs> 
for this show. That's fair. Good luck. <laughs> hey, he specifically told you how to say it. And you still got it wrong. I don't. I don't think M one that guy. Like <laughs> oh. this guy over here <laughs> tries so hard. Talia, I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, but uh, why have you joined us from the internet today? Oh, so I am in Des Moines right now. I'm doing a health policy elective here at the Capitol. So, what do you do yeah, in a health policy elective? Do you go hang that, out with legislators and? Yeah, so it's an elective you can take as an M4, and so you get paired with some people from different lobbyist groups. There's like another uh, medical student doing it with me right now. So we got some different teaching on like how to make your points, how to appeal to different moral foundations. And, you know, we find bills we're interested in and care about and go to like meetings and try to talk to legislatures. And yeah, it's a, it's interesting. You know, it's a, it's a different world. Is it a world you're comfortable in? No, but I'm not comfortable in many situations. I think (laughs) that's just I'm just an awkward person, so (laughs) just generally uh, uncomfortable. That's I'm just yeah, that's my that's my baseline. But definitely, yeah, no. What, what, it's just what's something sorry. that you've learned about this world while you've been doing it? It is way more like a high school cafeteria than I thought it was going to be. You know, like there's definitely the cliques and a little like, you know, factions and gossip and this kind of like tit for tat thing too of like, oh, if I do this for them and they'll help me with this. And I don't know. There's, hmm. you know, I don't know. We all like to think that policies are always based on good science and you know i'm not going to get too down far down this path there's <laughs> a whole different type of there are a variety of ways that people approach policies and how they decide on whether something is a good policy or not and sometimes you agree with people and sometimes you scratch your head and you're like i have no idea how you got to where where you you are with this right now, it's just like. Do you I don't know. do you see yourself in uh, in a health policy role in the future? I don't know. Or is this just like of, a one and done? Like okay, well this is this is okay, too strange. It's been a really great learning experience, and there is something that is exciting and feels meaningful about trying to advocate for policies that affect people's health because we know that so much of people's health is determined not by like what happens in the doctor's office, but all these other things. So I think I'd like to be involved in that more in the future, but also, I don't know, it's been like taxing in a different way than what I'm used to. So we'll see. Okay. TBD. Are you part of the track, the, like the health policy delivery track or whatever? I am. Yeah. And I believe Mason is on leadership for that. So I'll talk to you after we'll chit chat. Well, Whatever happens, seems like an interesting, valuable experience. That's the beauty of electives. Not everything's going to hit, like clinical or not. Like it's about finding what does and doesn't work for you. It's better that you know to learn about it now than maybe you're trying to do it later and invest more of your important yeah. time. I, I think that it is incredibly valuable to learn that even at the highest level of organization for our society, being our, our governments, right? People have all kinds of motivations for the decisions that they're making, including yeah. sometimes, hopefully, evidence. But not always. Yeah. And it, it just is what it is. And you do your best to work with the people that we have, right? It must be so hard to cultivate that that attitude, though. You know, like you have the evidence, right? You have the evidence. You're trying to convince people of, you know, you know, let's let's make a policy that pays attention to the evidence rather than other things. And and time and time again, that's probably a difficult case to make. It, yeah. But it's an important case to keep trying to make. Pol- policy is I just finished a phenomenal book for the book readers out there. I'm going to go ahead and make a plug. There are these two brothers, Chip and Dan Heath. They write a lot. Dan recently finished a book a couple years ago called Upstream he talks about trying to solve problems upstream and what that looks like. And he spends a large part of the book talking about preventive medicine mm-hmm. and how much money we don't spend on the things that are upstream but, and how much we therefore have to spend downstream. And one of the things he talks about is, you know, different programs that take, you know, decades to get done. It's, it's If you go into policy, you're in it for the long haul. You yeah. know, you have to be a very patient individual. Yeah. But, you know, you do the way you can. 
Well, today I wanted to focus on some of the myths that surround medical practice and medical education, things we've all heard online in TV shows and movies and from friends and family, but which are at least a little bit wrong. Any come to mind off the top of your head that you want to start us off with? I've got, a, I've got one. Yeah. I always have one. I'm sorry, guys. A couple. Whew. I would be disappointed if you didn't. Law and Order SVU, I want to say. Oh, okay. Within the last couple of years, aired an episode wherein they accused a potential perpetrator of wanton endangerment of others because they were HIV positive, mm. but their counts were undetectable yeah. and they had had intercourse with another person and they blatantly shared the information that, the, that they were still, it was still possible for them to be infecting other people, which is not true and uh, probably puts people that are HIV positive at a little bit of social risk for them to be sharing that particular myth, right? So don't believe that, listeners out there. Yeah. I I think it's probably fair to say that if you're if you're getting your medical ideas from television shows or movies or things like that, it's probably not going to it's not going to not going to be quite right. Yeah, check your facts, you know, as well. Any others? that you want to start us off with? I was thinking the other day of the whole like burnt food and cancer risk oh. conversation because I've heard that just come up like really I don't yeah. think I've heard that one so well they've done studies on it I didn't spend that much time looking into it uh-huh. but, like I heard you know the like 10th remark and I finally was like well I should look this up and see yeah and like I don't know the, the way it goes with all these studies is just like well we didn't find any association right but like you can't you so can never a, be like they, definitively I guess they're like there, there might be a marginal risk there's some compound when you burn things that like they're like oh maybe it's a carcinogen but okay it, it kind of reminds me of like if you ever go to California like everywhere you go you have these warnings x might be a carcinogen oh sure or this is known to the state warning. of california to be yeah. only, only california knows this everybody uh, else is not in the loop let well, me tell you and if you ever go on like a jet bridge it'll be like prop 45 warning jet fuel is a known carcinogen and i'm just sitting there like really you mean to say that breathing in jet fuel <laughs> might be a problem for me I'm, I'm interested in the people who are like oh shit i guess i I can't go on vacation and they turn around and and leave the just jet leave. bridge well yeah and i think prop 45 is really interesting because it, it just they basically end up having to become the like myth busters on like does x cause cancer yeah because like if something does then you have to add it to the list of things that you have to put up signs about and i don't know i think it would be really interesting but probably depressing to be sitting Ooh, on, that on the subject of cancer i've got a couple first linus pauling a nobel prize with a two-time Nobel Prize winning scientist tried to push for years that you need to take vitamin C because it would stop oh, all right. kinds of ailments. Yeah. Turns out if you take, if you do what he did was, was macro dosing, like I think 10, 10,000 milligrams a day at some point, he and his wife both died of stomach cancers because too much vitamin C will give you cancer. Crazy. Because oh. it just eats your stomach lining. And the yeah, other that's one, the whole, uh, I mean, this is, this just ties into the whole, you know, if you take more of it, it'll work better. Yeah, turns yeah, out dosing, a lot of people, dosing really matters. That a right? lot of people think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you if you don't have enough water, you die. But turns out, if you have too much water, you can also you die, die yeah. right? Like, do- dosing is very important in almost everything we do. I'm glad you've warned me about the burn food thing. You're just going to ruin marshmallows for him. Forever. I didn't know that. I don't think it does cause cancer. <laughs> I'm not, I'm saying like that's like a myth that people propagate. I know. I'm just thinking like of all of all the burned foods that I've made. Right. Because <laughs> that's all that I, creme brulee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God, I love creme brulee. Damn it. Um, okay, can I share one? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yes, please. So my mom has been watching Grey's Anatomy recently. And I knew she this was going to come up. Me, she was like, I've learned that at hospitals to watch out for supply closets and what doctors might be doing in there. <laughs> Which, like, you know, she's saying it in jest, but just the thought, like... No one's having sex at the hospital. Like it's the least sexy place imaginable. So yeah. I, th- I think people generally know that. Like, all right, it's you know people Jet- aren't really getting it on in supply closets and call rooms. But just want to emphasize to the nth degree, like there is really nothing sexy about the hospital. I think Jeff got a look on his face though, like he's not certain he believes Ooh. that. Which makes okay. me wonder what's been going on in supply rooms where Jeff's around, but. I'm not saying it's every hospital. I'm not saying it's every specialty, but having worked in an emergency department, (laughs) 
there there's a certain type of personality that gets attracted to emergency medicine they like a certain level of thrill in their lives oh, oh my gosh uh, i had not considered this <laughs> and <laughs> i've never gone to the emergency department there again. is there's always a little bit of drama based off of the the couplings that happen that's as far as i want to get into that subject yeah yeah <laughs> i think you brought up an interesting supply closets and emergency point. rooms beware <laughs> yeah <laughs> You'll be real careful in the emergency department opening up doors. <laughs> knock seven oh. times. Oh, wow. Is that a myth or not? Can we no, put that in the list of... I, this is anecdotal evidence. Is I don't know if anybody's doing a randomized controlled trial of, of is it the <laughs> chances of these things happening. Is it the supply room? No. Jeff. No. It's okay. authorized personnel only doors. Behind those... It's, so it's more the personnel have a tr- trouble walking in on people, but... Yeah. Just things that I have seen. Okay. Yeah, I think there needs to be a trial done on this, like maybe a sampling of, you know, these authorized personnel rooms and emergency departments across the country. See, like how often when you open one of these doors is someone, you know, (laughs) submitting that IRB. (laughs) Have have you ever seen a tie (laughs) Oh, busting into break rooms. See what I can find. It's funny that like that's a plot on like sitcoms too. Like there's like I remember like yeah. a Friends episode where that's a topic and oh, yeah, yeah, it's I, I feel like every writer in a, on a sitcom is just like you know what's comedy gold supply closets and hospitals. The, the fact <laughs> though that this is a trope at all because I mean you know the, these things come about most of the most myths I think probably come about out of something you know they they have a. A bit of truth to them, right? I would say Sam Shim popularized this. Oh, this right, trope. right, right, right. Yeah, he's the the author of uh, House of God. House of God, which yeah. practically every. I was told student. to read it, and I finally read part of it. It's so smutty, and it was just a little much for me. I was like, "Where's the medicine in here? Like, this feels." <laughs> I there yes, it is. It is a very sexual book, gratuitously so. Yeah, but I do think that if there were. If you could edit that part out, there there's a lot of really good cultural information that 50 years later is still quite relevant to people going into residency. So he uh, has a new book. He does. Man's fourth best hospital. Yes. I recently read it and uh, that one made me a little sad, but oh, okay. Uh, it's Why? a good book. Uh, it just, it ends on a, on an unfortunate note, okay. but on the subject of myths and medicine, I've got another one. Okay. I, I just want everybody to know that I love birds. But Rachel <laughs> Rachel Carson did us a disservice by propagating certain beliefs around DDT that were unfounded. Some things were true, right? They did make eggshells thinner. Uh-huh. I couldn't tell you how much of a detriment that was to the bird populations, but her data were non-existent. So the fact that she just made up things about, I think I see less birds. She wasn't even a professional bird watcher. It's not like, you know, who was Rachel really, Carson. She's like the most famous environmentalist of the last hundred years. Yeah. She wrote a book called silent Springs, which is where we get this idea yeah. that DDT was harmful. Uh, several of the other things that she propagated about DDT were that it caused all kinds of childhood leukemias and cancers and stuff, which was not true. But if you believe that, I mean, that was a death sentence at the time, right? Or at least there was no evidence for it. Well, I mean, I mean now that there is evidence, to the contrary, oh, right? Okay. But she was making unfounded claims. Yeah, when I think DDT, yeah, which I don't often think DDT yeah. because it's <laughs> probably not around much anymore. But it, it was banned worldwide. Right. The WHO has, within the last fifteen years, unbanned it for the use against pesticides. Mm-hmm. The reason why this is important is because, but I want to say between like 1960 and 1973, the rate of malaria in India went from. Uh, hundred million i mean this is obviously a very large population a very dense population but a hundred million or something like that to thousands mm. from from literally like that's several orders of magnitude of people that had the chance of living because of using ddt to to limit mosquitoes so this myth has indirectly caused the deaths of millions upon millions of people in the last 50 years so, so. maybe an overarching myth would be that all decisions in medicine get made on the basis of science. Oh, yeah. Oof. Could you imagine? Yeah. What, a, what a world yeah. I, I that would be. I've heard about DDT in the context of they attributed its banning to the resurgence of bedbugs in the U.S. <laughs> and obviously, I don't know how much harm really comes. I mean, not, it's so not because malaria. it was banned. All these bedbugs are now DDT was like a really effective okay. bedbug approach. Okay. And without it, they have a much harder time eradicating right. them. Yeah. Yeah. Let me 
Sorry. Continue your thought. No, I'm, that's it. It's just the bed bugs thing. But let me tell you about the harms of bed bugs. I had bed bugs during the pandemic, like the beginning of it, and then had to take everything to the laundromat and like while the exterminator was there. And then I was supposed to be on some like Zoom didactic session at the same time. And the Wi-Fi didn't work at the laundromat. It was a whole mess. Next morning, so I got back home after the exterminator. You know, we did all the right things. I woke up the next morning and there was a bed bug on me. And I, man, that I just, I couldn't yeah. handle it. Did I you think have that's a, the closest I've ever come to like reaction? a mental breakdown was that finding that bed bug on me after doing all that stuff with the, anyways. That's horrible. So they're, it's fine. They eventually got rid yeah. of the bed bugs. But all I'm saying is that. I, I would I rather know. live in a world without bed bugs. I think yes. that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. That, that said, turns out maybe DDT isn't as harmful as we thought it was. Yeah. Especially if you're suffering from bed bugs. I do. I do love birds. I want everybody to know that I am for having birds. Okay. You're not, but, you're, you're not one of those anti bird people. No. Are they real though? Is the next question. <laughs> I, it broke my heart the other day when I saw that, that they're using taxidermy birds for drones now. What? <laughs> what? So it's not like it looks like a, a real bird, right? But it's, it's like a taxidermy bird, just like full wingspan and they're putting drones in it so that they Who's can survey. Um, specifically a surveyor. So people that are trying to survey bird, oh. bird populations and other wildlife. So that, that is a real big f- you to the other to the birds that they're you know, right? looking at. <laughs> Could you imagine? You just like <laughs> you've got this taxidermy com- condor flying around trying to count how many condor are left. Like, ooh, I don't you know, see, man. You're <laughs> not going to have any balloons floating over the U.S. anymore. It's I mean, just that's going to be taxidermy birds. birds. <laughs> I hope the Chinese aren't listening. Is that a chicken in the air? Like, <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine? Like, they don't even bother like having the wings out. It's just going to be. <laughs> Gee, I've, I've never seen an eagle fly at 60,000. <laughs> oh, my I God. I just imagine the other birds being like, John, John, we yeah. thought you were dead. <laughs> John hasn't said it. He didn't say anything to me. Jesus, when you talk about you dead. their friend's corpse flying around. <laughs> tough That's luck. heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh, my oh. God. <laughs> Jesus. Who's... Who is the uh, who is the sick bastard who pro- first posed this and was like, like, uh, guys, I know, I know that this is a little weird, but hear me out. It was guarantee a conservationist who said, you know what, drones are really good for our job, but they just look so ugly. Yeah, you know what would look better? Uh-huh. A dead bird. Yeah, yeah. Like the cell towers disguised. Exactly. Trees. Exactly. All right. Well, I didn't. That wasn't oddly. That wasn't on the list of things I was going to talk about today. But I'm really glad no we did. <laughs> really glad we did. Yeah, we brought that up. Short coats. We love to hear from you, no matter what it's about. So call us at three four seven short CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show. I got one. Doctors and med students are geniuses. Do you guys feel like geniuses? Less and less every day. Uh-huh. Yeah. If you had asked me yesterday, I, w- I might have inclined, been inclined to think that I was maybe above average intelligence. And well, then I, I mean, took this immunological test today and I feel like, whew, that one hurt my feelings. Yeah, they, I mean, you they, are they, above they average you. intelligence. I mean, I, I'm confident of that. I am less and less <laughs> confident of that. Mason has a point. I, I think like, you know, I, obviously they, they screen for, you know, having decently high intellect, you know, go to medical school. But I, I find like a lot of medical practice just comes from experience and hard work. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think intellect helps, but not ridiculously necessary. Yeah, there's I mean, there's there's a certain threshold of you have to be able to pass multiple choice exams. So like that is like a baseline component. And if you could do that, well, then you can become a doctor, like by the law of like you pass your different board exams. But then like what makes like really standout doctors is usually the things off the intelligence page or it's the emotional intelligence side of things and how they're going to synthesize information and then find with a patient what's the best like in between. I think that's an intelligence we don't like necessarily select for it 
intentionally we don't have a good way to we try and get at it but like if you know i I think of like a theoretical physicist who like are just like cranking out math and that's all i know about it and i'm just like that's intelligence to me that's a real like creative problem solving high engine stuff i'm just like hey that looks weird on a screen we should like talk about it Mm -hmm. like i just feel like i've i'm a much more simple person i appreciate that you brought up that yeah there's different types of intelligence my partner is very intelligent in ways that I'm not. He's able to fix anything. And there are times that's just not a skill I don't have. And there are times where he's like, how are you almost a doctor? Because I'm just so bad at a lot of like daily life things. (laughs) Daily life things. (laughs) Yeah. Like just, I just basic I don't know. I don't want to. You don't need to know how a vacuum works to be a good cardiologist. It's just not relevant. You know, like you can forget the names of half of the states in the union and you're going to be really awkward at parties, but you can also still be a pretty good neurosurgeon, you know, like that's okay. It's just, you're putting all of your, like, if you guys like video games, you're just putting all of your, your skill points in like one, one skill. You're just maxing out medical knowledge and everything else is just who cares yeah i'm in max that hard it's just there was a presidential <laughs> conversation happening before the show and i who's a who's a president uh, <laughs> that's what what does a president do so yeah that's definitely i have not developed that skill tree i want to know what talia is especially bad at around around i don't know the home is that is that what you were okay. implying I'll just say I'm a very messy person oh okay. to the point where like my partner will question he's like did you did you even like do chores growing up? Which yes, I did. We had, you know, I had my weekly chores to get my allowance I had to do, but you know, I just like to think of myself as a free spirit, you know, the bounds of society or say a dresser or other organizational system, you know, it's just too confining for me. So um, this is something that I can certainly relate to my, my, my mom came to visit (laughs) this past May and we had, we, we had a rare argument because she was like, you know, got a nice house. This first time she'd been. Got a nice house. Could use some work on the details of cleaning. And I'm like, <laughs> rough. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Roasted. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't care about stuff like that. It's just not, you know, it's just not what I, you know, I don't care that the track in the, in the door, in the sliding glass door is filthy. You know, it's just not something I'm going to worry about. If it makes you two feel better, it takes me about 30 minutes to put a duvet cover on and I always come out sweaty and angry. <laughs> so, I never want my patients to see me after that. If it, if it makes all of you feel better, I have literally no idea what a duvet cover even is. So good. Oh, man, I do feel better. I feel like I'm in serious trouble over here. <laughs> oh. Maybe I'm a fancy doctor. I'll know words like duvet. Duvet. How about doctors are rich? Okay, you know what? Here's the thing. Now, yes, they are. The median income in this country is $60,000. The average physician makes $200,000 plus. Yeah. 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 Yeah, they're rich. Okay. I I get that they have debt, and I get that life doesn't necessarily get easier just because you have a little bit more money or a lot more money. But by the standards of most human beings in this country, yes. Yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge that you know, I, I, by the I'm standards the, of, you know, many people in the U.S., we're doing just fine. I'm willing to bet that there are doctors in this country that just bought eggs. They didn't even think about it. They bought eggs. Uh, <laughs> just didn't even slow down. Yeah. I'm going to get two dozen a day. Why not? You yeah. know? Rich bastards. <laughs> if you want another good book, I read a lot. Sorry, guys. I, we need to have Jeff's book club. Jeff's book club. <laughs> just like... <laughs> Jeff's book hour. I read this book a few years ago called The Broken Ladder. I'm I'm sorry I can't tell you the authors off the top of my head, but essentially the point of the story was that income is less indicative of your social and and uh, mental health and physical health than comparative income. And areas that have higher social or wealth inequality have worse health outcomes than areas that have lower absolute wealth but more wealth equality. So that said. 
I think probably one of the reasons why a lot of doctors feel like they aren't very wealthy is all of their friends are doctors, right? Especially people like residents who are making sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. Oh, okay, sure. And they've got an attending over here that's making three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. They feel poor, you know, even though they don't really have to worry about housing insecurity. You know, they they don't really have to worry about whether or not they'll be able to afford going to the hospital if they get sick. They still feel a huge disparity. And I'm sure that that still weighs on them. So that's fair. It's, it is all relative. Also, stop comparing yourself to other people. But, you know. Yeah, that's hard. a human it's, nature problem. Yeah, it's literally like impossible to not. But yeah. I think what's also helpful to keep in mind, because I think that doctors is rich thing also comes from a place of that's why healthcare is so expensive. But when you look at contributors to cost of healthcare, like the salaries of physicians can be up to like eight to 10 percent. But that's still like paling in comparison of drugs, devices, and everything else that's making up the rest of that pie. And it's it's also the fact that physicians are trading off a lot of time for a higher income. So at some point, like if we don't balance that, or unless we make medical school free universally and drop physician salaries, like that's a different type of investment. But at some point, you've got to like justify, you know, the investment you're putting in. I'm looking at the end of the day, post high school, I'll be. Six, eleven, you know, like nineteen years of training while my friends are making income and I'm, you know, working a lot. So it's like I'm not going I will be rich one day. And but in this interim, it's like understanding that there's a lot of like discrepancy. Like I'll be a doctor in May and I have some family members that are like, Oh, so you're rich now. It's like, no, no, <laughs> not at all. I'm also finishing up here in May and I have a hundred and seventy thousand dollars of student debt. So you just, you don't feel very rich when that's the case. And yeah, I can, you can look at things and be like, eventually one day I'll have my debt paid off. That'll be probably 15, 20 years. But it's, you know, when, again, it's like your friends who took different paths that didn't require as much schooling or say like, you know, established in their careers, having families, making good salaries. And you're like, I'm 29 and I have almost $200,000 of debt. You just, yeah, you don't feel very rich. <laughs> How about this one? Doctors must be healthy to be good at their jobs. And by healthy, I don't mean that they that they don't have illnesses, but that they don't look healthy. Like doctors. Like jaundice? No. Like, you know, things like overweight or I'm not sure I'm putting this quite correctly. So is the the myth is that if doctors You can't don't be a good doctor part, if you're if you're overweight. Or you can't be a good doctor if you don't, you know, look like you take care of your body. So I I think it's probably a spectrum, right? So somebody who has lung cancer might feel like their oncologist who smokes on his breaks is a little disingenuous, right? Mm -hmm. Fair. I think that it kind of depends on what you're going for. I I think that you might be a better, you might have more moral authority in, in the sense that, not that you're right or wrong, but in the sense that you can kind of back up what you're saying. Sure. It's like going to a personal trainer. Like it's the one that's fit that I'm going to trust a little bit more emotionally to get me where he's going. Even if he's saying the exact same thing as the the guy next to him who is, you know, skinnier than I am. Right. If the better you take care of yourself as a doctor, the more emotional impact sometimes your advice can be taken with. It doesn't necessarily mean that your advice is better. It's just people might listen more. Yeah. where, Where possible, follow your own advice. Yeah, I just think that, uh, you know, especially with with respect to weight in particular, it's it's such a difficult problem to manage for your average person that I, you know, I don't think doctors are exempt from that situation, you know, so so if they if a doctor has, for instance, a weight problem, you know, to ascribe it to their behavior and thus to say that they should be doing better is a kind of a problematic viewpoint because I think at this point we know that you know behavior is important but it's not as easy as just saying well fix that yeah yeah I think there's a lot of internalized fat phobia I mean in society and within medicine as well where you know just because someone's fat doesn't mean that they like don't exercise or don't eat well like there's a lot of assumptions you're making about someone's health if it's you're just making it based off of weight so like yeah, that's that's problematic. Here's one I I feel strongly about. Doctors are only serious and professional. 
Have you met me? Well, I, I mean, guess they haven't given me the title yet, but they're going too soon, and it's. I'm gonna bring the whole seriousness level down several notches for the whole profession. I don't want. I don't. I want my doctor to be serious in some situations, right? But I would. I would be much happier knowing that my doctor, you know, is a goofball. Also, I think. Yeah, it's like you. You know, people aren't often one or the other. And I think people like, yeah, if you're in the emergency department and you're having some serious going on, you want your doctor to be like top of their game. You want her to be just like focused like a laser. But I want um, my doctor to be Fozzie Bear in that situation. <laughs> I don't understand the reference, but uh, good. I got you, Dave. <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> but anyways, I find a lot of people are just really good natured in general, too. So it's like, you know, that I think doctors are like goofier, or more personable on average than many other people. Or maybe that's just people I hang around with. I feel like it just comes about, I, I think the professionalism component, I think is important. Like it is important that the medical profession stays professional in a lot of regards. But the, the thing that I think needs to adjust is like our expectations of what it means to be professional. Thank you. Like I think being, there's like a way you can view it erroneously where like a professional person is serious all the time. But, but I think like there's a lot of room to be a very professional person and, you know, still be personable and relatable and at the same time not doing inappropriate things well, what's inappropriate that's, that's the, the question at the yeah. end of the day so this is goes goes back to <laughs> this is a, a flashback to an, air, an episode that you guys did several years ago well before i was here about that <clears throat> poor dumb medical student or resident or whatever he was that decided to see how professional physicians were online oh. and he docked points to female physicians because they had like yeah you know bathing suit photos on their yeah. facebooks or whatever yeah we've talked about that a couple of times yeah. yeah like one the problem with that is the fact that he was rushing for publications because he thought he needed it for the next job advancement which is dumb enough as it is but two nobody is professional all of the time nobody is serious all of the time people have to be able to if you're in the room with a physician yeah i want them to you know be somewhat professional with me but when they're at home sure let it be idiots i think i think we should honor people's right to be dumb in private i I love being dumb in private (laughs) i've i've kind of made a career out of being dumb in public so true yeah i mean but i'm not a doctor so (laughs) i just represent a medical school (laughs) (laughs) that's why in the early days of this show i was often freaked out by the idea that somebody important might listen to it. Um, I also think it's, you got to be careful with like professionalism being like too professional and stiff in the clinic room. I mean, my favorite thing to do is when I have patients like do like abduction at the shoulders, kind of like they're flapping their wings, I'll start quacking as I push on them. And I do it for patients who are six up to 90 and they all <laughs> love it, but that it's so silly and stupid. But no. I think like that's, uh, then I get that special moment with them. We have a little fun with it. And I feel like those interactions afterwards always go so much more smoothly. So uh, it's like, you got to give yourself a little permission to be yourself like in the clinic room because otherwise you get the kind of the, the other myth of like doctors are doctors are just like they're never paying attention to you they're just looking at the computer which i'm not saying it's a myth that it doesn't happen but like that's not all doctors are as humans they are like you know funny artistic creative people as well doctors always have to be right we do mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. true 100 <laughs> percent. doctors are never no wrong notes. <laughs> it's, been, yeah. it's been thoroughly vetted that doctors cannot be wrong <laughs> I think a skill you have to develop in medicine is acknowledging when you, when you are wrong. Because, you know, I think you have to first think, well, it's okay to be wrong sometimes. But then, yeah, I think there are moments where it, it, it can be harmful to just keep insisting that you're right, even though you know that you're wrong about something. So that's just a skill I think you have to develop. So, so admitting admitting that you're you're you were you were wrong and also doing it in a way that you do it as early as possible (laughs) and that's i mean to be fair with that myth i don't think that i I would say that most doctors probably don't feel like they can't be wrong in their practice i think most most of them are reasonably terrified that they could be right but there is a hidden curriculum that you don't admit that you're wrong in a lot of places even if there is even if we are explicitly told that it's okay that we make mistakes as long as we own up to them and we try our best to repair them. The hidden curriculum at a lot of institutions is 
you can't make mistakes. You cannot be wrong. Uh, I mean, that's and, terrifying. And mistakes are costly. Like, let's be clear, especially in medicine, they're 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 costly. I don't know that you can 100% avoid them, though. Yeah, I mean, like, it's every industry's got their own their own thing, right? But like, if I try to think of an example, if if I'm a mechanic and I mess up and I end up damaging a part, that's going to cost me some money. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to cost somebody their life. Right. And we're in a profession where if we make a mistake, it very well could. And so the the intensity is problematic to, to being honest. But turns out patients and physicians have a better relationship and better quality of service if we can admit when mistakes are made. Everybody feels like the, the trust is a lot higher when we're able to comfortably say a mistake was made here and I'm going to do my best to to make reparations. Medical school is cutthroat and competitive. Some of them are probably. I think, I think it's possible. Yeah, my yeah. classmates spent all night sending me cheat sheets on the group chat. So by cheat sheets, I mean like study guides for the test that we. Yeah, had we today, call right? them cheat sheets. Nobody loves that term, but yeah, no, they spent all night. Somehow, study me guide is somehow better, right? They <laughs> all night they kept sending me their doodles to help memorize these different pathways in immunology. I don't think we're necessarily worried about that here. So very nice. That's a nice thing of going to med school in Iowa. Yeah, I, you know, hear things about different med schools. I don't know. Hard to say because I've only ever gone to med school here. Yeah, but I think like it's an interesting test of like how what you expect of other people because like you could come in here being like, well, they have this like near honors grade, which is on a percentile basis, and so you know anybody trying to get that is never going to want to help other people because well, if you help other people, then the median goes up, and then so does the threshold for near honors. I think there's like probably some people that, you know, have that concern, you know, and like I, I think like if you just don't trust other people, you'd expect that to happen. But yeah, I've been really happy to see that at least in, in our class, people are, people don't have that mentality. You know, it's very much not seen as a situation where helping other people study is a situation where you're worsening your own situation, which I think is good. Yeah. So it's entirely possible that there are cutthroat medical students. We have 175 kids total between the PAs and the medical students that are in all of our pre-clinical courses. I probably interact on a regular basis with maybe 50 of them, and all of them have been more than happy to help me out or to discuss our study habits or or things like that. So at least here, Iowa is definitely the place to go if you like collaborative learning. (laughs) How about this one? You've either got empathy or you don't. You can't be taught empathy or you can't learn empathy. Is this a myth? I think it is. I think empathy is a skill that can be improved upon. I think it's also fair to say that like all skills, you might be born with a specific deficit, right? And it could be to the point that it is pathological, just like any other skill, right? If I have a muscle weakness that it's so severe that I can't interact with the world then we would call that pathological. If I have a deficit in empathy that is so severe that I can't communicate well with other people, that's different. But I think for the average person, you have a you have a range of ability when it comes to empathy and you can work on that. Or you can choose not to and just say, you know, or whatever your, your phrase du jour is, but like, God made me this way. I don't have to change. I can just be a jerk to everybody. I think the thing I was thinking of when I wrote this down was... You know, there's, there are levels of empathy that you have. So you can, I I think it's common for people to have empathy among people who are like them. And somewhat less common to have empathy for people who are not like them. And I think part of it comes from, you know, just spending a minute to, to think about what it might be like to be not you. So, um, so I would make the argument that like, this is a perfect example of an exercise you can do to improve your empathy. Who isn't like you? Turns out everybody is in some form or fashion, very much like you. Yeah. But it takes a little bit of sometimes imagination and, and effort to see that. Yeah. That's the, I, I feel like that's the work that you have to put into, yeah. to empathy, to be truly empathetic means to you know, be able to put yourself in somebody's place even when that place is foreign to you. Or at least 
to not make judgments on people who you're you are un, you know whose situation you're unfamiliar with. Yeah. I think that's kind of an important component of empathy because you're, you know, your, your perspective is not going to be perfect. It's not going to be, you know, you're not always going to be as open to other experiences as you might want to be, but to recognize that and to make sure that you're, you know, doing your best to stay open is probably, is, is pretty important. One I like to do is radiologists never see patients and they just sit in a dark room all day. Not true. Not just interventional radiologists who are kind of clinical, but like diagnostic radiologists are doing biopsies a lot and they'll see patients, you know, doing procedures in and out throughout the day. Kind of varies by your practice. There are some radiologists who sit at home and just do their work, but there are a lot of hospital based ones who they see, you know, patients daily and have to talk to them and, and interact with them and they're just as personable as other people. So particularly for people you know, considering careers in medicine, like radiology doesn't mean you have to hide yourself away in a dark room. It's got a good blend for some people. Is that the last myth? I'll be honest with you guys. I came with specific like medicine, medical myths, not the culture of medicine myths. And so I'm sitting over here thinking about drug interactions. That's all I got (laughs) is the culture of medicine. You know, like I can't reasonably no I, I think these are these are very valuable for people that are considering this field right but yeah there's a probably a lot more that we didn't speak of either you know things like you know doctors will only work in certain settings or all doctors are in the the pocket of big pharma and they'll do whatever the, the drug companies say right right or or nurses and physicians assistants are just there to serve doctors yeah. or and they don't you know they don't have their own you know, sort of expertise and scope of practice. Yeah. Or that nurses and doctors are constantly at odds with one another. I think that's a fun myth that like we're two rival gangs or something. I don't know. Only straight A students can be doctors. Oh gosh. I mean, I'm not going to, I think gonna, that's the most harmful myth. I'm actually. not going to release my uh, high school transcripts, I, but let me tell you, I think that's, <laughs> that's among the true. more harmful myths for people trying to get or you know, hoping to get into medicine is, is, you know, no, that's not, you know, you don't have to have perfect grades. You don't have to have a perfect MCAT. You don't have to, be a particular vision of a perfect medical student. So I don't know. I think about that. The reverse corollary too, just because you have perfect grades doesn't mean you have to go to medical school. Or it doesn't mean that you will be a great doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Or that you can even get in. Yeah. To be honest with you. Yeah. We've talked about that many times. Well, all right. If you if you have any myths that you would like to share with us that we did not cover, listeners, uh, send us a message three four seven short ct. Send an email to the shortcoats at gmail.com and we'll talk about it on the show. Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. Talia, early in the show, you mentioned, I think it was in the show, you'd mentioned being awkward. Yeah, I'm, I might have said something like that. Yeah. yeah. Medicine is a field of human interaction, can have many instances of awkwardness as we navigate communicating in a human way full of, you know, misspoken words and sometimes speaking before thinking. As a medical student, part of your subjective clinical evaluations is based on your impression management skills and the ability to clearly communicate. Particularly Mason and Talia, how do you handle sort of these occasional moments of awkwardness with Grace? Can you think of any times where you walked into a patient room and just said something so dumb or, or (laughs) immediately (laughs) (laughs) do you want to hear about probably like my most embarrassing moment of med school? I love that. So, okay. So this is on my OB-GYN rotation and you know, like over time, I think doctors develop like little scripts for how they, they go through things, especially like, you know, more sensitive topics. And I'll just say I'm still working on it, you know. So I, this is like my second or third pap smear ever. And I'm like, okay, well, I should like tell the patient what I'm about to do, but I don't want to use anything to, you know, medical terminology. So what I said was, okay, I'm going to spread your lips now. And <laughs> I was like, whoa, immediately in my head, I'm like, that was not the right thing to say, but I'm like, just keep it cool, just keep going. So, you know, got the speculum in, did the pap, everything else went fine, found the cervix on the first go, which was felt like quite an accomplishment. But yeah, anyway, so coming out of the room, so we go back, me and the attending go back to this shared room with all the other students, residents, and attending. And she kind of says, oh yeah, 
By the way, like, never say to a patient, I'm going to spread your lips now. Like, that's just weird. You want to make it as normal as possible. And I just, I, I, I melted into the floor. I was like, I'm, I know, I, it was, I'm so sorry. What should I say instead? And she's like, just say, you're going to feel my touch. And so, yeah, I'm not, that is like, is seared into my brain now. I just say, you're going to feel my touch. But yeah. I, that's, what a fantastic anecdote. I have never felt so much empathy for a medical student. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, I was. I love that the, I, the the attending was was you know kind, but also like just did that in front of everybody. Yeah, I mean, it was probably something where she's like, "I want to make sure you know this," and you know, just in clinic you're kind of rushed you don't always have time to like okay let's go have this discussion in private so like i get it but it was very just like uh, hey talia can you just like be less awkward please yeah <laughs> it was very embarrassing anybody yeah. do, do you have a do you have a sir thing that you cringe about i don't i've definitely gotten like moments where like i start like tripping over my words because i'm like talking too fast and but that's like the worst time every had. day yeah. yeah or when things do come up uh, like usually like humor is a good deflection that you kind of win people back with of like i i mean i've done the thing of i've walked into a clinic room prepared for the wrong patient mm. and like quickly realized it and you're like oh because you're like oh how'd your surgical last month they're like what i was like awesome this is not the same person <laughs> I well that's a little that yeah that's a little awkward because yeah. you know like the 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 patient expects you to have looked at a chart and you know learn some things about them and yeah so you did the wrong so then i was just like you know oh that was someone else i saw frantically log into epic and start quickly scan their notes as we're kind of chatting about what's going on but yeah that it happens and i think you just kind of learn like to roll with the punches i think people are understanding like that we make mistakes but if you like double down you're like no you had a surgery last month if you make it even weirder like that's that's never gonna go well for you i think you just gotta reflect and, and be like yeah i made a mistake and we'll move on our producer, AJ Chowdhury, sent me some some examples, and this one reminds me of, of that situation. So you're on a surgery rotation, and you're starting your day with the med student task of interrupting patients' peaceful sleep at 4.30 a.m. to ask about their bowel movements. Having been primed to go through your default list in under a minute to get to the OR on time to annoy the scrub tech with your existence, you go in to check on your... <laughs> On your patient, on your POD, I'm not really sure what that means. Post-op day. Post-op day one, bilateral below knee amputation patient. While running through your list of questions, you ask your patients if they, you ask your patient if they have been able to walk around yet. That seemed a little extreme to me, but I bet it could happen. It's super easy mistake because they're in, in bed, you know, sheets over their legs. You may not realize like exactly what you're seeing them for. You're seeing a bunch of patients in the morning that it's really easy to just kind of like use that canned phrase. So I've changed my canned phrase to have you been up and out of bed? Because uh-huh. that at least gets to like, you know, been working with PT, like maybe get up in the chair and stuff and that can give me some of that functional info. But yeah, it's a super understandable mistake that for the person who now has a, you know, bilateral below knee amputation kind of seems like a massive oversight in their care. Like I think I'd be kind of thrown off by that if one of my providers asked if I could walk after I just had a surgery to take off both my legs. Yeah, I wonder how you would recover from the, I would just like turn around and leave. <laughs> like, let me like, go get somebody competent, please. <laughs> just make eye contact with them. Just like, excuse me for a moment, and then just never come back. So I, we we have not. So I'm a first year. We've yeah. not had a lot of patient experience, but we do have these early clinical experiences, or I don't know what. Yeah. And my first one was in neurology. I may have shared this story before. I'm a little older. I'm 30. I have some gray in my facial hair and I tend to wear this herringbone blazer around. People have mistaken me for faculty quite a few times. Mm-hmm. That said, <clears throat> I was on this ECE and the resident who did not really know who I was, was doing a neurological exam on a patient. For those of you that don't know, this involves a lot of like poking of the face and sticking out the tongue and there are a lot of things where you're checking on cranial nerve symptoms, right? And he pimped me hard, like eight or nine questions of why do we do this? Why, what is this for? What would this sign tell you? And I had been in medical school for a few weeks at this point, right? So I'm, of course, just a deer in headlights. Just I don't know, I Is this know. what this is going to be like? Time, yeah, the whole time. And I was like really embarrassed. I was like, man, I really should have known this. And after he got done with his exam, I was supposed to talk to the patient about <laughs> their feelings about coming in today and what was their chief complaint and all this stuff. And the patient just looked at me like, man, this guy's a straight up idiot. <laughs> 
and I was walking out and the resident was trying to be nice about it. But he was like, like, you really do need to know all of that stuff for your shelf exams and all this stuff. And I'm like, it's like my first week, man. I don't know anything. He felt so bad. He thought I was a third year, but it is what it is. So that patient had no confidence in my ability to help them in any way, shape or form. So. And well, you didn't have the to be fair. To that was, that was a reasonable expectation yeah. to set, but it, it made the interview really awkward. <laughs> I, I, I'll I'll say I mean so yeah the two patient interactions we have we have ECE then we have interviews with standardized patients and I don't think I've had a single standardized patient interview in any context that hasn't been awkward in some way yeah there's just something about it like well, how do you close it not awkwardly do you say okay I'm gonna leave now I'll be back later do you just say okay bye you do then, the porky pig thing we'll, we'll, dip, 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 dip. <laughs> that's all folks we'll do like these like small group one-on-one interviews but it's like you divide a one-on-one interview into like three parts and three different people do it and nobody ever knows how to transition in and out of those because what do you say like I'm going to leave now and another medical student is going to come talk to you for the next part of this history. And it's yeah. just, I, I don't know. I think it's like, it's obviously low stakes because this is a standardized patient. But I'm just like, you know, I'm not learning anything. It, about it does how seem to like a not uh, be awkward with patients from this experience. Yeah, it does seem like a guaranteed awkward encounter. I mean, in order to not be awkward, you have to have, you know, rules to follow. And if there are no rules, if no rules exist for that situation, if you have not grown up with these rules, then you're going to it's going to feel weird. You see, now here's the problem. You know that the rules exist. You just don't know what the rules are. Well, oftentimes yeah. that's true. Yeah. Like we like we from birth are trained that there are rules in every social interaction. And most of the time we feel like we have a general grasp on what those rules are. Right. Like yeah. I know the rules in my family. I know the rules with my classmates. I, I know that there are rules between me and my patient and I just don't have a good grasp on them yet and it's going to get weird. But there are no rules for three people to pretend to be one med student in order to interview that's a true. Yeah, patient. I that's, mean, that's, just, that's just anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, sometimes they we'll should like, set things out, you know, like just stop talking and point to the next person. So, that's, like, that's what I do. Honestly, I just say popcorn and then I <laughs> drop all pretense. It's It's weird. Let's just have fun with it here's another scenario it's grand rounds and you are zooming into the presentation being early enough in the day that you're still not fully awake but late enough in the morning that you've had your coffee and the slightly suspicious cold breakfast casserole from the hospital cafeteria you forget to mute yourself as the presentation begins suddenly you feel a violent lurch in your stomach being that you're zooming in from an otherwise empty student workroom you let that bad boy rip only for everyone else in grand rounds to hear and your face becomes the active speaker plastered on the big projector in the conference room. How do you recover from this in the five seconds you have before everyone recognizes the grand rounds farter? Log out. What's that? Log out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is actually an easy one, I feel like. You just leave. There's no saving face. (laughs) You just... You can't. You can't. There There should be like a one button log out you know, panic button feature for Zoom. But then it can't say at the top, so-and-so logged out, because if you fart and then log out, <laughs> that's also a tough look. Never use your real name when you're logging into Zoom. You know? Yeah, this is a you somebody else's you, name. You recently changed your name. Now is the time. Yeah, this is true. Nobody's going to recognize you. you see, yeah, any, any Zoom where they're not taking attendance, you just always change your name to somebody else because, you know... It's the OG Hedge. That's our show. Talia, Jeff, Trent, Mason, thanks for being on the show with me today. A pleasure. And what kind of clumsy, ungainly, clunky, difficult, gawky, graceless host would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Thanks to the producer of this episode, AJ Chowdhury. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education... Life in America, life in the world is often difficult, and I often wish I could help. 
All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. This Short Code Podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.